From Exodus 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider, he is hurled into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. It is great to be with you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church, especially if this is your first time. We're really glad you are with us. Uh, it's good to be back. It is. Uh, I was in Spain the last 10 days, got back Friday night, so it is really, really good to be home. I'm still a little bit jet-lagged. It's 5.30 uh, p.m. Spain time, so I'm Still adjusting a little bit, but it is really, really good uh, to be home. And thank you for for sending me on this trip. It was a a mission trip. I spent uh, six days in Madrid doing a training cohort with pastors on how to to develop a a missions program and and a sending ministry in a local church. Uh, And so it was not a vacation. Uh, These were 12, 14, 16-hour days in Madrid working uh, with a cohort and doing teaching and training. Uh, I did get to eat good food, a lot of Spanish food, a lot of coffee, although it was like a lot of small coffees. 
I don't know if you've been to Spain. I didn't know this was a thing. The first coffee shop I went into, I ordered a, a large black coffee, and I got like a three-ounce latte, you know? Uh, apparently, that's what they do there. I, I know it's not my fault because my Spanish is impeccable. You know, I said, yo, soy, nida, cafe, large, Joe, pronto, you know? Large travel mug full of coffee, and they gave me three ounces of latte. And so... Had a lot of good coffee. I mean, that's the way it is there, though. Like, every coffee shop only serves, like, latte, espresso, Americano, and they don't open till 8 a.m. It was staggering. I mean, missions is supposed to be hard, but I'm like, Lord, send someone else. This is tough. The hotels didn't even have coffee. It's amazing. Um, so time in Madrid was really, really good. Uh, and then I spent two days in Granada, where we have two missionary families that are serving. Got to spend time with them and, and their kids and see their ministry, the church that they've established really an incredible work to, to Spaniards, to Latinos, to North Africans, a lot of Muslims in those communities. And so uh, it's amazing to see what the Lord is doing in a, in a very difficult area. Spain is about 1% uh, evangelical. Uh, the Catholic Church is not healthy there. And so about 1% of the population of Spain follows the Lord. And even that number is mostly uh, Latino believers that have come from Central and South America. So roughly one in a thousand Spanish people know the Lord and are walking with the Lord. So it is a, a high-need area, a, 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 an underreached or, or hard-to-reach area. And so it's so encouraging to, to sit with these missionaries, to sit with the workers and try to encourage them. One family had been there six years, the other's been there two years, and both of them said they had never had a, a pastor or really anyone from their sending churches visit. And so it is, a, it is a hard thing that they're doing, and we're excited to be partnering with them. And so in the coming weeks and months, I'm going to share more about the trip and what it means for us as we uh, continue to grow in our own participation in the Great Commission overseas. But I'm so excited for what the Lord is doing and stirring up in our own congregation along these lines. And it's also really good to be home. Uh, it's one of those good trips where it was great to be there and great to be back. It's, it's hard for me to be away from Trinity, this church that I love so much. On a Sunday, I heard that you guys had a great Sunday. You went through the Red Sea without me while I was gone, so that was great. Congratulations. Thanks to my man, Austin, for leading them through the waters. Appreciate that. Glad to see everybody made it through safe and dry. I don't know. <laughs> but this morning, we're in Exodus 15, continuing our series in uh, Exodus, where we're looking at the presence of God and how the presence of God leads us uh, to himself, not only out of oppression, out of sin and death, but into his very presence. Exodus 15 is this beautiful chapter right in the middle of the book. I believe it's, it's the center of the book in a lot of different ways. And so the, the Israelites have come up out of Egypt. They are, they are free for the very first time. They are on the, the eastern shores of the Red Seas. Their enemies are no more. And what we're going to see in, in the chapters that follow 16 to 40 is them moving towards the promised land out in the wilderness. But, but right in the middle, chapter 15, we get a song of praise. After going through the waters, they, they stop everything. They, they sacrifice some animals. They do a thank offering and they, they sing out to God. Because that's what you do when you, when you experience something great, when you've been rescued, when you've been saved and redeemed. You can't help but share that with other people. You can't help but sing and celebrate the goodness of the Lord. So that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to see three themes from the song, three things about God that are worth celebrating. He is majestic in power. He is unfailing in love. And he is present to his people. 
So the first thing is that God is majestic in power. This is the opening stanza in Moses' song. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he is hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. And so let's take a moment to to imagine or or to put ourselves in this scene. The Israelites have have only known slavery and oppression in their entire lives, and, and more than just their lives. But for 400 years, Israel has been oppressed and impoverished in Egypt under the thumb of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Egypt is the, the strongest, most, most wealthy empire in human history up until that point. They have the strongest, most technologically advanced military. But, but Israel has been called out. Moses and Aaron have, have stood before Pharaoh and they said, let my people go so that we might worship the Lord. If you remember in chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord and why should I obey him? And that sets the scene for, for God's response. God responds with, with the plagues, with demonstrations of his power, but also of his mercy. There are 10 opportunities for the Egyptians to soften their hearts and turn to the Lord. But every time Pharaoh's heart remains hard. And so in a dramatic fashion, Israel escapes in the night as the the angel of death passes over them. They're out into the wilderness. But the next day, in case we're wondering if Egypt has had a change of heart, no, Pharaoh sends his entire army, every last soldier and chariot after Israel. And so Israel's on the, the western banks of the great sea and they look up and they see this army coming at them and they cry out to the Lord. I mean, could you imagine the, the panic, the fear, the anxiousness, the, the terror that you'd be experiencing? But the Lord says, be still. I will fight for you. You will see a victory. Your enemies you will never see again. And then he hides them. The presence of God is like a cloud that hides the Israelites and they move through the sea on dry ground. And as soon as they step out, as the Egyptians follow them into the seas, the waters come back down and God's enemies are wiped out, every one of them. So you can imagine being on the other side of this sea and, and all of the greatness of God that you've just witness how overwhelming it would be, how fantastic it would be, and and yet it would be disorienting. What in the world do we do now? We have never been free before. We have a vague sense of where we're going, but we are out in the desert, in the wilderness. And what do we do now? And so Moses, the, the wise leader, he stops. As soon as they're safe on the shore, he stops and he calls a worship service. So they stop. They pause. Moses writes the song, and then Miriam is like the worship leader. She picks up instruments and helps Israel sing along. We've spent the last year and and two months talking frequently about worship. Why is singing so important? We see there are more than 400 references to singing in the scriptures and over 50 direct commands to sing. 
Isn't that incredible? Like if you think of all the different commands of the Bible, people, you know, outside the church will say that the commands of the Bible are, are so heavy. They're, you know, they're oppressive. We, we need to throw them off and just live in freedom. And, and we're thinking, you know, we're commanded to, to sing. We're, we're commanded to sing out to God. And we know that this, this command is for our good. We know that all of God's commands are for our good. They, they show us how life works best. They show us the path to wholeness and thriving and flourishing and go. So God commands us to what is best for us. He commands us to sing. We love to sing. We were made to sing. You, you go to a Coldplay or a Taylor Swift concert and you, you can't keep people from singing. It's the most natural thing. You, you go to a football game and you can't keep people from, from raising their hands and clapping and cheering and, and, and you know, praying in intercession for the kicker at the last second when he's lining up the field goal. It's so, so natural to sing and to pray. And yet still as Christians, we, we struggle with it. And there are all kinds of things in our, our world, especially in a, in a secular kind of society where we struggle with, with anything that's really spiritual and transcendent. But we were made to sing. There's research that I was looking at this week that shows that singing in a group, not just singing alone, but singing with people has a profound impact on us as humans. When we sing with others, our body releases endorphins, our, our mood improves, our stress is decreased, our mental clarity is improved, depression and anxiety are both lessened, and this is just by singing in a group of people. Could be a concert, could be church, could be anything. But singing is for our good. Now, looking at this, this chapter, the first five verses are about God. They describe who he is and, and what he's done. They praise him for what he's done. And, and they're marked by what's called an inclusio, meaning the section begins and ends with the same refrain or the same phrase. It says, both rider and horse have been hurled into the sea. And so this inclusio is a, is a kind of double reference to emphasize something and what it's emphasizing is their deliverance that all the forces of Egypt have been crushed, that they have been delivered. Verse 2, it says, I will exalt him. And the most literal translation is, I will decorate him. I will decorate God. It's, it's a phrase that's used for the, the decorating of a soldier when he comes back from battle, when he's displayed courage and valor on behalf of the nation, and they put medals or awards or honors on the jacket of the soldier. That's called decorating him. And that's what this song is doing for God saying, I will exalt him, I will decorate the Lord. In verse 6, the language turns to direct praise. Instead of talking about God, it's now talking directly to God. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. And this is good news for God's people. It's good news because all of God's power, all of his glory, all of his, his sovereign strength is all for our good. If you think about it, the mighty power, the, the omnipotence, the strength of God is all exerted for the good of his people. It's, it's a loving power. It, it's a patient strength, a, a long-suffering strength. All of God's power and might is leveraged for the good of his people. It's a righteous and life-giving power. And that's why Moses can pray, our God is majestic and power. And so I want to pause and, and ask you, where are you longing to see God show up in your life? Where do you need to experience the deliverance of the Lord? 
Maybe it's in your, your health. Maybe it's one of your, your children. Maybe it's in your work. It's maybe a bit counterintuitive, but I believe the, the scriptures are, are showing us that even though everything in our bodies say that when we're in trouble, we should, we should fight, we should fight back, we should take control, try to, try to get out in front of it, try to defend ourselves. What can I do to, to restore my own health? What could I say that would change my child's heart? What could I do at work that could lead to a, a better reputation? But it's as if Exodus 15 is saying, have you tried singing? Like in everything you're going through and all of your trials and all of your challenges, have you tried just singing to me? God's saying, have you tried singing a new song, writing a song? Have you tried singing the Psalms? Have you remembered the power of being in the church and singing out? We often say here, don't sing when you pray or when you feel like it, but sing until you feel like it. Often our our hearts and our minds follow our bodies. So as we sing out, we begin to have our our emotions, our desires stirred up for the Lord. It often takes some time as we sing out to him together, but then God begins to lift our spirits. And so God is majestic in power. The second thing is that he is unfailing in love. I'm going to drink my coffee here because I can Orange coffee everywhere. Bless you. He is unfailing in love. Verse 11. Who among the gods, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. Is my favorite verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. In all the the commentaries and and books on Exodus I've been looking at and studying, all the scholars are trying to find what is the most important chapter of Exodus, what is the the central unifying chapter of Exodus. And so some people say it's the, the crossing of the Red Sea, chapters 13 and 14. Others say it's 19, where God speaks from Sinai, or 20, the Ten Commandments, or 34, where Moses gets this vision of God. I mean, there, there are a lot of good chapters in Exodus. It's like hit after hit after hit. It's like Moses, you know, it's like the Old Testament's like, just like banger of an album, you know, I mean, it's like over and over and over. It's just great. I want to suggest the chapter 15 is the thematic and theological center of Exodus. Because as I mentioned, they've, they've come out of Egypt and they're going into the promised land. But here, there's a chapter right in the middle where all they do is sing. They praise God for who he is. They've tasted the deliverance of the Lord. They're free. But before they do anything else, they pause and praise the name of the Lord. In particular, I think verse 13 is the central verse in all of Exodus. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. It's not enough just to redeem us. It's it's not enough just to be strong for us, but in his unfailing, unfailing love, he draws us to himself. He remains with us. 
I mean, it's this, this beautiful gospel proclamation. There's strength and love seamlessly flowing together in the very character of God and in the, the actions of God. We see this all throughout the book of Exodus. There's a, a sneaky, underrated theme of the love of God showing up again and again and again. In Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, God tells his people not to make idols or graven images of him. And he says it's because he's a righteous and holy God, but then he, he says this, that he is showing love to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commands. So all of God's laws in the book of Exodus are actually rooted in the character of God and in the, the nature of his love. Exodus 34, when God appears to Moses, he declares his name, as he, as he sings out over Moses, but here's what he says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. When God describes himself, whether it's in Exodus or all throughout the storyline of the scriptures, he's describing himself as the God of love. It's not just love in general, but the phrase here is, is his hased love. The Hebrew word hased is, is his covenant faithfulness. The, the love that is, that is enduring, that is, that is fighting, that is strong, that cares for its people. It's his defending warrior love, his patient, never-ending, always and forever love. It's strong enough to wipe out an enemy, and yet it's gentle enough to comfort the lowly and the suffering. So now I want to ask, what would it look like for you to fully embrace God's love for you? What would it look like for you to live beloved, to, to really feel and to know the love of God, not in a general sense or just in like a theological, theoretical sense, but to actually know and feel God's very love for you? I think it might be the single hardest thing in the Christian life. When I think about my walk with the Lord ever since I was a child, my greatest struggle has not necessarily been with, with the laws of God. I'm, I'm kind of naturally like a law-abiding citizen, you know. I just kind of do whatever I'm told. And so obedience for me has not necessarily been the greatest challenge in my spiritual life, but rather simply knowing and believing that I'm loved. That's so much harder than, than following rules for me. Maybe it is for you as well. It's not just a a struggle that I, that I don't know, or I, I don't believe that the scriptures say that he loves me because from beginning to end, creation to the cross to new creation, God is demonstrating his love for us. But it's still just so, so hard to live in that, isn't it? To actually feel it sink into our hearts and minds so that we live out of a place of security and, and love, the way that a child just knows that they're loved by their parent and can live from that place. That's why Paul has to pray with all of his might in Ephesians 3 that we might have strength from the Holy Spirit to do this one great, challenging, all-important, super difficult thing to know the love that God has for us. Isn't that crazy? One of the hardest things to do in this life is simply to believe and to live in the love of God. And so we have to immerse ourselves in the scriptures and go regularly into his presence and prayer and surround ourselves with friends and community, all to remind us that we are beloved, that all God's strength is focused into his, his said, his faithful love for us, his people. 
And so God is unfailing in love, but here's the third thing, that he is present to his people. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. And so these final verses form another inclusio, this sort of double reference. You will guide them to your holy dwelling. And so this inclusio is making a a reference to emphasize God's continuing presence with his people. If you remember, the first one was to, to emphasize God's deliverance of his people. This one is to emphasize his continuing personal presence with us. So even in the very structure of Moses' song, we see something that we've seen in almost every single passage of Exodus so far, deliverance and presence. Relationship, gospel, these two things going together that we've been saved from and we've been saved for. We've been saved from sin and death, oppression, our enemies, but we've also been saved for We've been saved for a life with God, for community, for a new purpose in this world. Like Moses, we've been drawn out of our old life so that we can be drawn in to the very heart of God. We've come out of Egypt, the western shore, the old place, so that we might come into the promised land, the very personal presence of our God. Now, if we return to the very beginning of Moses' song, we see the, the line in verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. But you'll notice in the, if you have your NIV Bible in front of you, there's actually a footnote that says that that word defense can also be translated song. The ESV and other translations do this. It says, The Lord is my strength and my song. And I think that's actually the best translation. I like the NIV. It's my preference, but I think song is the right word there. And it matters because of what I think God, what Moses is trying to get out about God is that he is our strength. He is our, our firm foundation. He is our rock. He is majestic in power. He is the, the delivering God, but he is also the God that we sing to. He's the reason that our hearts are, are lifted, that, that our lives are filled with purpose, that that we have a reason to sing, but not only that, that God himself is singing over us. God has become our salvation. He has become our very song. He's our unfailing, has said, love. And so before we finish, a few points of application from this song and from the last few weeks in general. First, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Maybe you're not threatened physically, I hope not, but you're facing some kind of relational threat or challenge. As I said, everything in us wants to fight back. Everything that we've learned in this world wants to, wants to respond in self-defense, to justify, to vindicate ourselves. And yet all throughout Exodus, God is saying, be still, wait on me. The challenges you're facing, you will never see again, but you must wait on me. The second, be curious in suffering. Remember that all of Israel's suffering was preparation. It was preparation for the salvation that God was going to bring about. There were hundreds of years where Israel was simply under more and more and more oppression. It made no sense. They were crying out to God, but God was doing something in that suffering. He was preparing them. He was cultivating the the soil of their hearts. 
And so I say, be curious, not just be patient. You have to be patient, but also be curious in suffering. What might God be doing? Is there something that God can only do in me through this hardship or through this suffering? And so curiosity helps us to lift our eyes and to ask those questions and to to see where God is still at work, to see what he might be doing even in the midst of the darkness. So wait on the Lord, be curious in suffering. Third, aggressively practice gratitude. Sort of an intentional play on words there. I don't think we think about being aggressive with gratitude. There's uh, a pastor that uh, passed away years ago. I've kind of been reading all of his his books and letters for a, a class that I'm doing. And there's this letter that he wrote to a young church planner who's trying to get his church off the ground and he's working long days, trying to make it work. And the old pastor, Jack Miller, says, you have all this aggressiveness and that's good, but you need to center your aggressiveness on cultivating a life of prayer. Saying, go slow with the church, it'll be fine. Don't, don't go full speed and wear yourself out. But with all that youthful aggression you have, pour all of that into developing a life of prayer. In the same way, I say aggressively practice gratitude because we're often aggressive in defending ourselves or in achieving success for ourselves. And when you're suffering or facing hardship or even persecution, you might have all that energy rise up in you. What do you do with that? I would say practice gratitude. Look to where God is at work. Look to how he is still present with you. Look to how he is opening things for you. See how much we have to be grateful for as believers. Be aggressive in practicing gratitude. And then lastly, cultivate a love for singing. We, we struggle and, and we stumble, but that's why we gather. That's why we come back together every single Sunday. We need one another. We need the fellowship. We need the prayer. We need singing together. We were made for this. We were, were made to, to sing in the presence of one another. It's why music exists. It's why worship leaders exist. I love that at the end of the passage, it says that Miriam got out some instruments and gathered some volunteers and they, they rehearsed the chorus. They began to sing and maybe to, to dance and they got all of Israel to come together and learn this song together. To, to express their praise and celebration to the Lord, but also as a device of memory so that they would remember what God has done. And this song has lasted for thousands of years because of it. We sing because God is our strength and our song. We sing because he's majestic in power and he's unfailing in love. We sing because he's personally present to us, his people. Uh, Two weeks ago, I talked about how many parallels there were between the the Passover and Exodus and the new creation in Revelation, the, the plagues, the Lamb of God. And here again, we see the same thing. If you look forward to Revelation 15, again, God's people are standing by a sea. Again, they're celebrating God's victory. Well, this one was a battle between Christ and the, the great dragon, Satan. It's this prophetic illustration of the spiritual battle that's been going on for ages that we are caught up in even now. And on the banks of the sea in Revelation 15, you know what they do? They sing. And specifically what they sing, it says that they sing the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. It seems as if they sing Exodus 15. 
There's a little bit different ending, though, in Revelation 15, because instead of praising God for his salvation of Israel, it praises God for the salvation of all nations. Jesus is called King of the Nations, and it closes by saying that all nations will come and worship before you, Lord. This is the good news that the Israelites deserve to be swallowed up by the waters just as much as the Egyptians, but they were saved by grace simply because God set his love on them. The same with us. We are just as deserving of judgment as anyone else, just as deserving of death as anyone, but we have someone who has passed through the waters on our behalf. Christ took the judgment that we deserve so that all nations might come and sing to him. Just like in Exodus, judgment has passed over us. The blood of the lamb has covered us. The presence of God has hidden us. Our cries for help have become songs of deliverance. For God is our strength and our song. Let's pray and then let's sing.